Hello and welcome to Alchemy Radio, the home of the open mind. Thanks for tuning in and hopefully you enjoy the show and the guests that we bring to you as frequently as we can. As you know, we're completely free, not for profit and available on demand at alchemyradio.net and we're also on iTunes. And thank you to you all for listening. Our listenership is increasing all the time. I won't harp on too much about the associated costs except to say that should you care to donate, the donate and subscription buttons are on the website. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, so get following there and interact as often as you would like. All your feedback, guest suggestions and other input is greatly welcomed. So, on to the show. This week's guest is Mark Gaffney. Mark is an environmentalist, he's a peace activist and a researcher and writer. Over the years, his articles and essays have appeared in numerous journals, magazines, newspapers and widely on the internet. He's the author of five books including Black 9-11, Money, Motive and Technology and 9-11 is exactly what we'll be speaking about today. Mark, you're very welcome to Alchemy Radio. How are you? Good morning, John. Very happy to be with you. No, the pleasure is all mine, and I have a question that I ask almost every guest when they come on the show for the first time, so I'm going to ask you the very same question. I'm wondering, how did you get from where you were, how did it all start off, to where you are now? Well, John, uh, <clears throat> kind of a long story, but uh, to, uh, to make that short, um, I was really quite uh, complacent for many years, you know. I, did, I just assumed that Bill Clinton was doing his job as president, you know, taking care of the country. And I had a rude awakening. Uh, it didn't happen till around 2006 uh, when I began to look back and realize what a disaster the last 10 years had been, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, I, I got involved in 9 uh, 11 research when I first heard about the tritium that was discovered at the World Trade Center in Building 6, then deep in the, in the bathtub there at the World Trade Center. And I don't know if you know this, but uh, I had been doing research on, uh, on nuclear weapons. My first book was about Israel's nuclear weapon program. And so uh, my ears pricked right up when I heard about that tritium because it's one of the indicators for a nuclear blast. And there was also a uh, possibility of an uh, electromagnetic pulse. Uh, and, you know, this uh, got me started on 9-11 <clears throat> research. I didn't find anything more on that, uh, to, uh, to, but, but there was so much other stuff that, that I just never lost interest. And uh, my first paper was a, a critique of the NIST report, NIST. They did a, that was the official study of the World Trade Center collapse. And, you know, one thing led to another after that. So the rabbit hole was open, so to speak, and we're still delving further and further in as time goes on. Um, you mentioned there the tritium that was found at the site. I mean, th that must have been like, excuse the pun, but a time bomb for you in terms of the work that you had been doing. I mean, what kind of effect did it have on you? Was it all, all of a sudden it's hang on a minute, I know as opposed to suspecting something is not what it seems. How big an effect did it have on your life? Was it a case of, right, let's drop everything and uh, delve into the information as much as we can? Or was it a more gradual process? Well, <clears throat> it was rather abrupt, actually. I went from <clears throat> being complacent and not doing anything, uh, uh, you know, not doing any research to researching it almost full-time. 
for a, quite a while. And so, yeah, it <clears throat> it was life changing. And um, uh, you know, the more you learn about nine eleven, the more absorbing it is. It's just because there, there's just so much material. It's it, it it blows your mind, really. The more you learn, the more you realize what a, what a great lie we've been told. And let's delve into that great lie, Mark, because surely to God, 9-11 was planes being hijacked. September 11th, 2001, Al-Qaeda terrorists with box cutters crashed into the World Trade Center, and that's it. Surely there can't be any more to that. Well, it's a cover story, and people have to understand this. Uh, uh, the the official investigations, for example, the 9/11 Commission, <clears throat> they they were not interested in finding out what really happened. They were interested in just uh, you know bolstering the cover story and maintaining the cover story, and that is why uh, so many vital pieces of evidence and, and and eyewitness testimony was simply ignored. You know, it, it never made it into the 9/11 Commission report. All the other evidence was discarded, ignored, suppressed, and so on. And one of the fascinating things that I found in the aftermath of 9-11, and for me it was, it was much, much later, it was years later that I started to look into it for myself, but when, the, when I started to do a little bit of research, and like a lot of people I was looking at videos and stuff like that on YouTube, I started to notice that a lot of eyewitness testimony, initial eyewitness testimony, was very, very different to the official story that eventually emerged from 9-11. So how valuable was that initial information? And the extent of the cover-up that appears to have been put in place then is so massive that it can only be grand conspiracy. So what would you say about the, I suppose, the initial responders and what happened to a lot of them in the aftermath of 9-11 and how that cover-up was achieved? Because the media is everywhere. Well, that's how they did it. They control the media. Uh, And you're right. The initial eyewitness accounts are very uh, startling. I mean, there were over 100, for example, I'll give you one example. There were more than 100 firefighters in New York who testified about explosives at the World Trade Center. And the uh, New York Fire Department actually did a study uh, on their own to record all the testimony. And this was down on uh, videotape. I guess they made written transcripts of all their people. There were over 100 of them that reported explosives. And this uh, this paper, this write-up, this report, was actually made available to the 9-11 Commission. They had it. And yet, uh, you know, they did not, uh, it, there's only one brief mention of it in the report, and, and they twisted it to, make it to make it seem that there were no, appear that there were no explosives going on. They and, turned it completely around on its head. And of course then, uh, people will wave this massive copy of the report and the commission in front of us when anybody questions the official line and say, no, well, I mean, a full-scale thorough investigation took place and the official story is what it is now. But there is so much that was left out of that and, I mean, clearly left out deliberately. What would be, I suppose, the key pieces of information that should have been in there if it was a thorough and full investigation that were blatantly omitted from that? Well, there's a whole list of things. Uh, For one thing, for example... uh the destruction of evidence. I mean, no, no sooner had this event happened than the World Trade Center site was cordoned off and uh, the um, <clears throat> pieces of steel were, were removed immediately. They were taking out uh, evidence that could have determined what happened. And uh, this, this went on, on, on you know, unstopped for months. 
And uh, when FEMA began its investigation, that was one of the early investigations, mm. their uh, people, their forensics people, couldn't even get on site. They were not even allowed in to examine the evidence. They had, they had to be taken on guided tours. And this was the pattern that, you know, it was just controlling the, uh, the flow of information right from the beginning. So let's look, Mark, now into who may have executed and planned what happened on 9-11, why they might have done it, and I suppose all the questions that will lead on from there. I mean, surely there was nobody, bar Al-Qaeda, who would have any kind of incentive to attack America in such a heinous way. Well, one of the major uh, failings of the official report, uh, the, the NIST report, for example, they never tested for residues at the World Trade Center. And had they done so, they would have found them. That's undoubtedly why they never looked. But uh, the, the, the fact that there had to have been explosives in those buildings <clears throat> tells us that there had to be complicity uh, at very high levels of uh, on Wall Street and... Uh, you know, in a, uh, with, with the U.S. government, there had to be complicity at the highest level. So, you know, I'm not going to name names, but uh, that uh, follow just follow the uh, money and follow the dots. You know, indeed, and there were a series of amazing coincidences as well that took place that just surrounded the whole chain of events leading up and after the actual attacks. Money, of course, is at the root of so much that we see in the world around us at the moment. And 9-11 is no exception, as you've just touched on there. And, of course, you've written now extensively about the financial trail that has led you to many of the conclusions that you have ultimately reached with regard to September the 11th. So let's talk about the finance and the insider trading and the money trail that existed, because it's absolutely fascinating when you start to piece together the dots that have been left behind there. Yes, it really is. Um, <clears throat> for example, the uh, the number three man at the CIA, Buzzy Krongard, uh and this information was leaked while the uh, during the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission investigation in the aftermath of 9/11, and I believe that investigation started out as an honest one, and then it it was simply uh, they buried the truth because they found that the uh, the number three man at the CIA, his bank, his former bank, A.B. Brown, was linked to these, uh, these put, option, uh, uh, put options that were purchased just in the days before 9-11. So this was insider trading going on. Uh, Buzzy Krongard was, was in the know, and he had, you know, he still had connections with that bank. And, uh, uh, I mean, this just went away. It just kind of dropped out of the media. There was, there was uh, leaked... And then it just disappeared. So in essence, what you're saying then, there, Mark, is that it appears there were people and people at the highest level who knew in advance what to do and how to profit financially from the situation that was set to arise. Yes, John. And what is really interesting to me is that uh, you have the, for example, the number three man, Buzzy Krongard at the CIA, who appeared to be fully in, fully in, in the loop about what was going to happen. And yet his boss, George Tennant, you know, two doors down the hallway, appears to have been out of the loop. He didn't really have uh, the details about what was coming. And if you look at Tennant's, uh, read his memoirs, it's very revealing because uh, this guy, um, I'm convinced he really did not know. He knew something was coming, but he didn't have the, uh, he wasn't fully briefed. 
And uh, he mentions, for example, in the very first page of his memoirs, how on September the 12th, uh, early in the morning, you know, he shows up at the White House, you know, and Tenet used to go to the White House every day to brief uh, G.W. Bush. Well, that morning, guess who was already there when he got there? The Prince of Darkness, Richard Pearl, <laughs> one of the neocons, was already there. <laughs> and Tenet, you know, can't understand this. He's, he's all puzzled about this. Why would, Ten- why would Pearl be there, you know? Mm. Well, undoubtedly, he was there to brief Bush about, you know, what he needed to know. It's all about need to know and uh, compartmentalization of, of uh, intelligence. And this is how they keep this story secret. You know, it's, it's very compartmentalized. And that's quite a clever way if you are looking to hide the truth of anything. It's quite a clever way of doing it because if, if little people are kind of essentially cogs in the information machine, it's very easy to remove a cog and replace it with something else without having to affect the entire machinery as it operates. You know, it's, 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 it's a very good way of doing it. And I suppose that might explain why it is that it has been successfully brushed under the carpet in the way that it has in terms of leaching through to the mainstream media. I mean, there are obviously a huge number of people who question what happened at 9-11 and there's a huge amount of research being done on it, but not that many people look at the actual high level and behind the scenes financial transactions that took place surrounding it and, of course, the, uh, the covert activity that took place then at the very top, as you mentioned there in the CIA. That's the story that tends not to get told and I think it's the most telling of all because it's much, much easier to <coughs> disseminate the other information if you have some kind of context or framework for it. And I think the financial side of it provides that framework that many, many people are lacking. One of the mistakes that so many people make, John, is they, they say, well, you know, the government can't keep secrets. There's no way they could have kept this secret. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, Daniel Ellsberg, uh, you might remember him from the man who released the Pentagon Papers, mm. wrote a very interesting book about his experiences. And he explains that, oh, yeah, they, government keeps secrets very well. And it's because of just what I said. It's because of the need to know and the compartmentalization of information. That's how they do it. And they're very good at it. Well, they are extremely so, good very at it. few people had the full story. Very few of the people who planned and, and uh, orchestrated these events had the full picture about what was going to happen. So, in terms of the full picture then, let's speculate as to the reasons why those who committed these atrocities did it. I mean, are we looking at a Pearl Harbor false flag event, or is it something more than that, Mark, do you think? Well, I be- yeah, I think th- that's enough. Believe me, that's I believe that uh, that's what it was. Yeah. Okay. Pearl Harbor type event, a, a false flag operation, and uh, you know the neocons were right out in the open about this. They posted a paper on the internet a couple years before nine eleven, in which they called for a great expansion of U.S. military power worldwide, and you know a great expansion of the U.S. military. Uh, and they said, well, to bring this transformation about, it may take a new Pearl Harbor. They're really open about it. With regard then to George Bush and the neocons, do you think it was a direct U.S. government plot? Do you think it was aided and abetted perhaps by foreign agencies or foreign powers? Or how deep does the rabbit hole go politically, in your opinion, with regard to the attacks? Interesting question. Uh, yeah, now, you know, in some of this, this is just speculation, but I think I would call it an informed guess, mm-hmm. okay? I think there's good reason to think that, uh, that, that U.S. officials were involved, that um, elements of the U.S. military were involved, 
elements from the U.S. intelligence community. Uh, there were also foreign intelligence agencies involved, I, I'm for certain, the Israelis, the Mossad. And there were also private contractors you know, involved, uh, corporations, secret you know, uh, entities. And so what we have is a network, uh, and it's kind of a good old boy network of, of cr uh, partly cronyism. Uh, some of these secret organizations, uh, like Skull and Bones, may have been involved. You know, people, these guys have known each other since college. You know, when they need a favor, they, they, they call somebody up on the phone. This is how this works. And they reach right down, you know, through different bureauc through bureaucracies and government agencies to individuals. And uh, so there's a kind of a, um, the chain of command of the military, for example, uh, doesn't really function in this kind of, with this kind of network. Mm. It kind of operates outside the, the normal bands or the normal structures. That's right. It's so, almost like, a, I think uh, Peter Dale Scott called it the deep, uh, deep state. It's kind of a supranational uh, network, you know, that involves, mm. uh, it's not even uh, just national, it's, it's international. Yeah, so it goes beyond the boundaries of nationality or political ideology or anything like that. It, it's something else entirely. It's a different club. It's a, it's a private club. That's right. Okay, so let's look, Mark, then at who benefited, because you mentioned some of the multinationals, and obviously the war machine has benefited hugely from what happened after 9-11, because the world changed, and it changed almost overnight in the grand scheme of things. I mean, what, what we see now going on, everything from airport security to the U.S. war machine internationally and, I suppose, em empirical advances, for want of a better term, with regard to the U.S., is, I think it's something that would shock somebody if they were told that was going to happen in the 1980s unless they were extremely well informed. Um, and, of course, the media has a large part to play in the picture that is painted there and in developing the paradigms that exist in, in the common person, you, you or I or Joe Soap or whoever it might be. So who were these companies and in what way did they benefit? I mean, we know they benefited, obviously, financially, but on what scale? So, I mean, wh what made it worthwhile doing for who? Well, take, for example, the companies that were listed <clears throat> by the Securities and Exchange Commission. They listed 38 companies that were suspects, suspected, you know, of being involved in insider trading. Mm. And on that list, you know, are companies like Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, Hercules. No, these are military uh, contractors. Uh, Raytheon's stock jumped 37% after 9-11. And sure enough, the people who had, uh, you know, uh, there, there was a lot of Raytheon stock purchased just in the days before 9-11. So those people, you know, made out like bandits. There was a 600% jump uh, of surge in call options for Raytheon. So there were a lot of people who were who suspected or had inside knowledge that Raytheon stock was going to go, go up. Wow, so there were astronomical figures involved. Yeah, we're talking about huge amounts of money. And speaking of these astronomical figures, there's a very interesting guy who's certainly worth mentioning, I think, at this point, and that's Larry St Silverstein. What can you tell us about him and uh, his activity in and around 9-11? Well, he's known for a number of, uh, number of connections here. Uh, he, was, uh, he had the lease on the World Trade Center building. We know that, and this was just, these, these plans were made just in the weeks before, you know, a couple of months before 9-11. And he didn't really put up very much money at all. And he walked off with, uh, after he had purchased uh, insurance uh, against terrorist attacks, I think it was 
the figure was around four and a half billion that he walked away with. That he that was a payoff from the insurance. Wow! So <laughs> this guy, this guy's definitely tied in with the uh, people behind 9/11. There's no question about it. There are many more amazing coincidences that surround the whole affair. Can you let us in on some of them? Because I think uh, a lot of people mightn't be aware of just just how anomalous everything that went on was. Well, if you look at the connections with American intelligence, uh, American insurance, AIG, you know, mm. uh, this huge insurance corporation that uh, they were <clears throat> uh, owned, for example, the Kroll, the... Uh, the Wall Street CIA that uh, uh, was responsible for security at the World Trade Center. And uh, the, uh, the CEO of AIG, his son, uh, Maurice Greenberg's son, was actually the uh, head of Marshall McLennan, another insurance company that was based on the 95th floor of, of Building 1 and took the direct hit of American Airlines 11. So his offices were the target. And, you know, these coincidences just don't happen. This is just too coincidental. You know, there, there, are, there is no coincidence in the world. I mean, things happen because uh, they're, 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 things are planned, you know? Absolutely. And this seems to have been very, very carefully planned to the extent that there seem to have been people and indeed whole companies who were forewarned or may have been given some kind of advance notice that they shouldn't turn up for work on that day. Can you shed any light on that? Oh, yeah. And, you know, we know that, for example, uh, Richard Grove was uh, one of the whistleblowers that, that I spoke with. He was involved with AIG, and uh, he had connections with uh, Marshall McLennan. He, his company, he was uh, involved in a company that sold software, and they had a, a contract with uh, Marshall McLennan to produce a very sp- proprietary software. It would, they had to have it installed by July the 15th, 2001. He was working around the clock to, and, and, uh, to bring this about. And uh, there were uh, all, he had discovered improprieties and, uh, you know, uh, evidence of, uh, of uh, hanky-panky and, and uh, uh, fraud. And he was told to just keep quiet. <clears throat> and... Later, he was—he had actually uh, made name, uh, after he was fired. He, uh, because he was a whistleblower there, he uh, maintained contact with some of the some of the staffers there at uh, Marshall McLennan that were, that he believed were honest and were really interested in trying to clean up, clean things up, and bring this to light. There was a meeting that was supposed to take place on the morning of 9/11 uh, at Marshall McLennan, uh, the 95th floor, and. To uh, there was going to be a, a truth-telling event, you know, with the where they were going to confront the uh, this the uh, higher uh, executives with this evidence, and um, guess what? All those people died in that uh, the, the crash of, of AA11 into the uh, office. Uh, Richard Grove just happened to be caught in downtown traffic and was late, and that's what saved his life. And the, uh, the Marshall McLennan executive was uh, uptown. He was going to participate by video conference. So he never, he was never there. You know, he never <laughs> showed up. So these are the sorts of things that really make you wonder. 
Well, they really do. And even beyond that, I mean, it kind of stretches the bounds of realistic possibility that all these coincidences could be just that. AIG, for example, you know, most of the insurance, uh, the U.S. In, in, insurance industry took a huge hit uh, because of 9-11. I think it was something like $40 billion uh, that they had to pay out, you know. But AIG came out smelling like a rose. That was one of their biggest years, uh, 2001. So they were, you know, Maurice Greenberg and the people who had insider knowledge, they positioned themselves to, uh, to survive it and actually made money off it. And in terms of corporate America, far from being the tragedy that it was for the common man or woman, 9-11 actually turned out to be quite a major event in a positive way for the, for the I suppose, the bank balances of these huge conglomerates. Oh, yeah. And, uh, uh, for example, there was a, uh, an employee at Deutsche Bank that contacted Mike Rupert, uh, and he talks about this in his book, uh, Crossing the Rubicon, uh, who had insisted that he maintain, uh, that he remain anonymous because he was concerned about his own personal safety. But he told Rupert that the computers at Deutsche Bank, and it was located right across the street from the World Trade Center, uh, it was heavily damaged, but the building stood. Uh, the computers uh, started going crazy uh, just in the moments before the attack and, and during the attack. And were, it was like they were being programmed, uh, you know, they were, they were doing their own thing, right? Processing information, who knows, money may have been, was possibly being laundered, you know, securities being traded. Uh, there was hanky-panky going on just in the moments before the attack. Right, so we're looking at clear motive for quite a number of interested parties then. And of course, the event does happen then, but there are a lot of question marks surrounding what actually happened as well. Again, we, we look at the, the regular story that's trotted out. We had Mohammed Atta and a load of his friends who hated the US and hate everything about the West. And they decided with box cutters they were going to hijack these two planes and crash them into the Twin Towers, which then <laughs> fell at freefall speed to the ground in a big cloud of dust and then ev there was much weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and that's not in any way to, uh, to take away from the suffering of so many people and their families because it was a massive human tragedy. Aside from that though, we have some major issues and I, I think quite often the authorities and the mainstream media use the human side of it and the fact that it was so tragic for so many people to paper over the little cracks that exist when somebody questions the official line. Well, how dare you question, look at all these people who were affected. How dare you kind of denigrate their memory or whatever. Well, we're not doing that here at all. We're just trying to look at some facts. And one of the facts of the matter is that there are many more anomalies that exist on a technological level. It couldn't possibly have been as simple as these two planes crashed into the World Trade Center and brought the Twin Towers down in the way that they did. Am I right in saying that, Mark? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, those buildings were over, overbuilt. <clears throat> I did a very, very thorough study of the uh, World Trade Center uh, uh, and the NIST report. And, you know, the, the core columns of the, the... There were 47 core columns, and then they had an outer wall... Uh, exterior columns <clears throat> but the world trade center uh, core columns were like seven inches thick at the base <clears throat> this was a massively overconstructed building in fact at my alma mater colorado state uh, they have a wind tunnel and the the man who used to run that wind tunnel 
did the studies, the wind studies on the World Trade Center design before it was constructed. And when he died a couple years ago, you know, they had a write-up in my alma mater magazine. This guy claimed, insisted to the very end, that those buildings were, were rugged and could never have fallen. You know, they they were not. Uh, they they implied in many of the uh, news stories, uh, and even some of the official uh, papers uh, after nine eleven that there was some kind of flaw in the World Trade Center design. That's hogwash. These buildings were designed to take the impact of an airliner. There's no way the planes could have brought the buildings down, and uh, the jet fuel was insignificant. It's just kerosene. It doesn't burn that hot. There's no way you can melt steel. <clears throat> There's no way you can even soften it. So, no, the, uh, the, the official story that the planes and the fires caused the collapse is just, it's just uh, uh, hogwash. It's a cover story. What really angers me, uh, John, is that the scientific community has, has stood by and allowed this nonsense to stand. We should have had many more engineers and scientists come forward and, uh, to point out that this is ridiculous. This couldn't have happened. So where are all these people? Are they just worried about their jobs? You know, the country here is in a dire state. You have to step forward. You just can't allow this sort of lie to, to, uh, to go on. It's beyond ridiculous for anybody who looks to delve a little bit deeper than the mainstream cover story that what supposedly happened could have happened in the way that it did. And uh, many, many listeners to this show will be familiar with the work of uh, Dr. Judy Wood and how she has managed to look at the simple scientific facts of how the buildings may or may not have fallen, what could have happened and what couldn't happen. And she's managed to do it without any kind of any political paradigm. And she's not too concerned necessarily with why it may have happened and background stories. She's just concerned with the facts. And I mean, she pretty much makes a very, very convincing case for the fact that uh, these planes couldn't have possibly brought the buildings down in the way that they did. You've already made reference to the hundred-odd first responders and firefighters who testified to the fact that there were explosions and explosives in the buildings. If much of the footage is studied, quite clearly and quite plainly, you can see explosions rippling demolition style through the building and I mean there are some ridiculous excuses preferred for that again jet fuel being the big one this kerosene drifted down through the building at breakneck speed and just blew out large areas of supporting columns of the building I mean as you say complete hogwash to use your term there and I think you're entirely correct with it so how did the buildings come down Mark how was it in the space of 11 or 12 seconds that buildings and structures of this size that were designed to resist exactly such a supposed impact did come down. Well, they were demolished. They were systematically demolished right in front of our eyes, and uh, we were told that this was a, uh, a classic collapse, <clears throat> whatever that means. That has no meaning, you know, in the, uh, in the, in, in the science world. It's just a, a term that they cooked up to try to convince us that this was a uh, classic building collapse. There is no such thing. Um, One of the the really interesting uh, uh, data sets is the seismic data from 9-11. And here again, we were lied to. You know, we we had these seismic signals that uh, they interpreted initially. They told us that this was the seismic signal of the uh, AA-11 hitting the... uh, of, you know, the 95th floor of the North Tower. Well, <laughs> guess what? It wasn't a seismic signal of any impact. A uh, plane hitting a uh, 95th floor of the World Trade Center 
that that kinetic energy would have been completely absorbed by the building. It would never have been coupled with the ground. It would never have caused a seismic signal. The seismic signal that corresponds with that event was actually the explosion in the basement that was coupled with the ground, you know, and therefore caused a seismic signal. And this was reported by William Rodriguez. You know, he was one of the janitors down there who who felt this huge explosion from below. Mm. And this was reported, and he had a two-hour... He gave testimony to the 9-11 Commission. I get two hours of testimony behind closed doors. Not one word made it into the 9-11 Commission report. So there you go. Well, that, and that, that's I, its Andrew Rousseau, the seismologist, has posted a paper. I, should, I want to add this for your listeners. He has posted a paper putting all this together about the seismic evidence, which is now up at the Journal of 9-11 Studies. And which can be, you know, it's very readable and I encourage people to take a look at it. Mm-hmm. That's very telling in itself. Yeah, I it mean, wh- why would information like that be discounted? It's vital, presumably. Where are, the, where are the journalists that should have brought this to light in the press? You know, they should have uh, been on all over this like a, uh, a, a, a fly on, you know, you know what? I mean, this should have drawn their attention. The, the, uh, the, the journalists uh, should have been should have written this up. I mean, this is a major, major story, how we rely to about the seismic evidence. And it just, it just never happened. And it's one of many lies. The flight paths are a very interesting one, and the actual planes themselves, and the, the story surrounding that, because there are many massive and glaring anomalies with regard to the so-called hijackers, about who was actually on what planes, and how these right. planes were controlled. So let's touch on that for a little while, Mark, because there is some, some fascinating information that you've brought to light with regard to all of that. Well, yeah, and let's get into my, some of this new research I've been doing about Flight 93, because mm. that's, that's touches on, it touches on all this, this issue. Uh, this was the fourth plane, uh, Flight 93. That's the one that took off from Newark, and it was delayed. Its takeoff was delayed by 43 minutes, and it was the one that went down at Shanksville, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. <laughs> and there were uh, a lot of reports that the plane might have been shot down. There are all kinds of stories on the Internet about it, uh, and... You know, it's interesting. There's a lot of disinformation, a lot of confusion about this flight, but it is it is interesting. And it, um, I've tried to cut through all the uh, layers of disinfo and try to get at the facts. And that's what I've that's what the paper that is being peer reviewed on this uh, by an online journal. It hasn't appeared yet, um, but we can talk about it. There was a controversy about Flight 93 because the official crash time of 10.03 well, was based on the flight data recorder. And, uh, and yet, uh, again, we have seismic signal for, uh, apparently for Flight 93 that happened at 10.06. So you had three-minute separation here between the seismic signal and the official crash time. Mm. And so what is going on here? You know, uh, ever since 9-11, we have been <clears throat> told that the way it was interpreted in the media is, well, it's got to be one or the other, right? It's either or. Yeah. And that's the way I thought, too, for quite a while. However, um, as I've gotten into this, I realized that that's the wrong approach. Uh, I believe that these were actually two separate events, one at 10.03 and one at 10.06. And um, 
I believe the 9-11 Commission really had to work hard to cover this up. If they had, if they really wanted to find out the truth about 9-11, they could have, they could have exposed this. If they had simply tried to explain this controversy, what happened uh, over the crash time, they could have, they could have blown the lid right off 9-11, the whole, the whole story. But of course, they were interested in, in, in uh, just preserving the cover story. So they didn't do that. They didn't go there. And where should they have gone then with it? I mean, what what are we looking at in terms of that anomaly? Well, when you look <clears throat> look at the crash site, the, the alleged crash site at Shanksville. Now, I visited Shanksville and talked to a lot of people there, and you know, <laughs> they were really friendly. I Shanksville is a very uh, interesting. Uh, it's a it's a great little place. The people there are very open, friendly. Everybody was willing to talk. I did not run into any rednecks or you know knee jerk reactions. Mm. Uh, and it was really a wonderful experience being there. And um, what I learned was that when I was there, I stopped at the high school and uh, had I talked to the principal. He gave me a pass to <clears throat> go around and talk to all the teachers. And they told me that that, that morning, and the, and the school is in town, it's located in town about three miles from the crash site. The teachers told me that that morning they felt a shock wave pass through the building. And of course, they assumed this was from the crash. Mm. Well, when I, when I con- consulted with Andre Rousseau, this uh, geophysicist, he said, oh, no, no. Plane crash would not cause a seismic signal like that. It would not. I mean, it would not cause a a shock wave like that. And so this is evidence of a of ordnance, military ordnance going off. This was a huge explosion that happened at 10:06, and that's what caused the seismic signal. Okay. Hmm. Now, if you look at the alleged crash site, and uh, I talked to people who were there that day. They told me a couple of people were the first ones to arrive at the scene. And these guys told me that uh, they drove in a pickup truck from Indian Lake, which was a couple miles away. And uh, as they were driving toward the uh, crash site, little tiny pieces of debris was falling in the back of the truck. <laughs> and we know there was a guy who was fishing out on Indian Lake that morning. He said he, he looked up, heard the noise of a plane, looked up, and he actually saw pieces of plane falling away from the plane, you know, it was disintegrating in the air. Mm. So there, if you look at the crash site, there's no wreckage. I mean, we just had a crash of a Malaysian jetliner in Ukraine, and I would encourage your listeners to go up there on the Internet. There's photos all over the Internet. There's all kinds of pictures, and you can see these huge pieces of wreckage. Some of it's recognizable. I saw photographs of the uh, landing gear, for example, and this is really hard steel, which tends to survive an impact. And you can see bodies, just visible visible bodies in the wreckage. Um, and this is what it would have looked like if Flight 93 had been shot down, if it had been a missile that shot it down. But there was none of that. I mean, the the pieces were tiny. People who got there didn't even, couldn't even tell it was a plane that had, plane had crashed there. There was just a crater in the ground and a smoking crater, and that was it. So the, the, the debris was scattered over several square miles, uh, which is, itself is anomalous. 
supposedly one jet engine was located about 1,800 feet away, you know, way off in a, in a forest somewhere. That's not normal. This is not a normal crash scene. So this is totally anomalous. So what the, what the evidence <clears throat> said to me, this plane was blown up in midair before it ever hit the ground. Hmm. And it wasn't just blown up, it was blown to bits. Uh, there were no bodies recovered. There were human remains, you know, little tiny pieces of flesh, slivers of bone. I mean, it's really dramatically different from this crash that just took place in Ukraine. It's almost like it was liquidated. Uh, yeah, it's, it's almost like it was just, yeah, liquidated. That's a good word for it. And I'm, this, this never came out, really. You know, the, the official investigation just papered over all this. So the other, the other thing that I discovered, there is, and I was really surprised because I never expected it. I, I didn't want to believe it. But we, have, we have a witness, uh, uh, Susan McElwain, who lived in the area, and that morning she was out in her car, and she didn't, did not know about what was happening in New York. She only learned later. And this thing went right over her vehicle, and she thought it was a little airplane or something, uh, an aircraft, about 40, 50 feet off the ground. It was so low that it caused her to duck, and she was at a stop sign when this thing went right over her. Mm. And um, it turns out that this, what she saw meets the description, it fits the description of a cruise missile. Okay? Mm. And I believe now that uh, it took me quite a while to come around to this conclusion because I really didn't want to believe it, you know. <laughs> yeah. But in the end, I was persuaded by the facts. She saw a cruise missile, and then she saw this thing disappear over the trees, and then just moments later, she heard this just huge explosion. And I believe that that's what caused the crater there at the alleged crash site. It was a cruise missile that caused a crater and that's why there was no plane debris on the site because the plane had been just liquidated, probably uh, 5,000 feet up, something like that. And the, the seismic signal was the signal of that cruise missile impact. Now, why would they do that? Well, they had to create a, some evidence, that, uh, you know, so they could, some basis for a cover story that this thing had crashed when, in fact, they, it had been blown up. So why would they have blown up the plane, Mark? Well, you might, you know, you could, you, you can speculate about it. I mean, if they wanted to destroy it, why didn't they simply order a fighter to go in there and shoot it down with a, with a sidewinder missile? They could have done that. They had, <clears throat> they could have rousted NORAD fighters, but we know from the radar data that there were no NORAD fighters anywhere near Shanksville. Hmm. At least none of them showed up on radar. And the only plane that showed up on radar uh, near Shanksville was this C-130, uh, piloted by Steve O'Brien. Uh, he had been taken off from Andrews earlier that morning. He actually had an uh, encounter at the Pentagon. He, he was instructed by air traffic controllers to, to you know, tail this rogue aircraft that was incoming. Turned out it was the one that hit the Pentagon, and I do believe that that plane did hit the Pentagon. Flight 77. After that, he was instructed to just continue on his flight path, and he, he was on his way to Minnesota. And he had another coincidental, and this, I believe, was a, probably a real coincidence. Uh, 
uh, he was diverted out of the path of Flight 93 just as he was approaching Shanksville, uh, Flight 93 as he was approaching Shanksville, and they did a zigzag around Shanksville, uh, and that's when he reported seeing smoke, and that was at 10.05, okay? Right. When, and this is all, we have this on uh, this part of the air traffic control record. We have the transcripts and the tapes, and uh, there's no evidence of any alteration. I believe this is real data. And uh, the time, that this was time clocked, and uh, the, the timer, uh, when he reported seeing smoke, and this was mid-air, he did not see a plume coming from the ground. He just saw smoke in the air uh, in the vicinity of Shanksville, and the time was 10.05. Okay, so whatever happened to the plane had to have happened before that. Mm. And that tells us that Flight 93 did not cause the seismic signal at 10.06, right? So these had to be two separate events. And the thing that really gets to me then is, I mean, if you need to stop a plane, if you reckon that the plane is heading towards a target and you, you want to prevent it from reaching that target, there are other ways. I mean, if your cover story is going to be that passengers brought down the plane or that they overpowered the hijackers or whatever which i suppose is is feasible we don't know what happened there but well i certainly don't know what happened there anyway but to leave such a glaring gap both literally and metaphorically in shanksville whereby there is no wreckage surely that's not the way to go about doing it i mean why such an extreme measure that again you would have to try and explain away and they've been very successful in explaining it away or in avoiding having to explain anything at all most people are completely diverted by the main event at ground zero i suppose um but i'm, I'm well, just John, you know i never really answered your question let me i was getting around to it um the question was well why would you have to obliterate it like that yeah exactly well the 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 answer one possible answer is that these planes, uh, if they had simply crashed, if, if, for example, you shot one down with a sidewinder, there might have been <clears throat> incriminating evidence on that plane that would have survived a, just a regular plane crash. So they had to be obliterated. And uh, the plane that hit the Pentagon was obliterated. Plane, and I believe it was a plane. Uh, that's a huge controversy. I, I try to stay away from it. I, I don't. Let's not go in. Let's not go there this morning. Uh, and the ones that hit the uh, World Trade Center, they were obliterated. There may have been evidence aboard those planes. For example, there may have been. Ex I suspect there were that Flight 93 was packed with explosives. <clears throat> uh, there may have been other evidence that could have survived a just a regular crash that would have uh, could have been incriminating. So you are of the opinion that that plane was heading for a target of sorts. Well, uh, we can't be sure, but uh, there's. I think you could you could certainly argue that. That it was headed for the Capitol, maybe mm -hmm. uh, Washington, um, and something went wrong. Maybe if it, something went wrong with the uh, remote control, and they had to resort to a backup plan to destroy the evidence. That's possible. I don't know if you've ever flown into Washington, but um, the target, the the Capitol, certainly is a an, a tempting target because it is so huge. Uh, and I've flown into Washington many times, and on a clear day, you can see the Capitol building from 100 miles away. Right. So, you know, you could even, I mean, you know, it'd be easy, an easy target. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting because you've mentioned easy targets and remote control. The Twin Towers, despite their size, 
most aviation experts seem to agree that they are not an easy target, bearing in mind the That's flight right. path. So, <laughs> let, That's right. Let, let, That's let's exactly talk right. about it's, that. Especially then. at high speed. At high speed, it's very, very hard to hit a building like that. Yeah, because we're told that these guys went to Floridian flight schools for a couple of lessons, and all of a sudden they're able to target these extremely difficult targets incredibly successfully, and down yeah. come the towers. Right. So what, what kind of, what are we looking at there? Because that's not adding up for me at all, Mark. Well, it, all, it, point, it does point to remote control. Um, there was a flight instructor, I don't know if you heard this story, um, <clears throat> I wrote this up in my first book, The 9-11 Mystery Plane. Uh, at a Phoenix airport, there was a, a training facility there where they had simulators, <clears throat> and on the morning of 9-11, there was a, a flight instructor who had a, had a class of pilots who were learning how to fly a 737. Mm. And they were in the simulator, you know, work, he was teaching them, and then suddenly, you know, the 9-11 happened, and everybody was glued to the tube, you know, watching it. And they shut down the airport, and his they were all stuck there at the airport. They couldn't get home. So he just said, well, let's go back into the simulator and see if we can hit the building. And so they set this simulator for the World Trade Center, you know, uh, and... Uh, this was a 737, and they went in there, and these, these were trained professional pilots. Now, one of them could hit the uh, World Trade Center, despite, it, despite repeated efforts. And uh, the instructor was able to do it finally after several attempts. And you have to remember that a 737 is a lot smaller than a 767, yeah. <clears throat> much more maneuverable. And yet, at high speed, uh, they were, most of those pilots were not able to do it. So, you know, draw your own conclusions. And they have papered this over and covered this up in the media. They, they, you know, they, they, they just never told us the truth about this. Yeah, and there, there's another interesting anomaly then that ties in with that, and it's the, uh, the passenger manifests, because we hear so much about the hijackers and Al-Qaeda and who it was, and we were shown pictures of who allegedly flew these planes and who masterminded, etc., etc. But um, there are some kind of glaring errors and omissions with regard to passenger manifests and stories changing. And you know quite a bit about this, so uh, enlighten me a little bit, Mark, because I'm fascinated by it. Well, actually, this is an area that I didn't go into in, in very much depth, uh, just kind of uh, touched on it. Um, but yes, um, we know that a number, I think at least five, maybe seven, of the 19 alleged hijackers were found to be alive and well after 9-11, uh, including uh, one guy was a pilot in Saudi Arabia with the uh, Saudi Airlines there. And <laughs> apparently it was the real, you know, the same person, you know, his photograph, he saw his photograph in the paper, you know, thought he was, and couldn't believe it, you know. And, and so obviously it was a case of stolen identity, identity theft. And of course, this should make you very skeptical of the official story. Uh, this, this was a, uh, this was a job, something you would expect from an intelligence operation. It almost seems beyond ridiculous to me, along with the fact that there was no kind of wreckage apart from a big pile of dust that was left by the trade centers when they came down, apart from one or two very convenient hijackers' passports, which, again, I mean, it's, it's just right. beyond and, ridiculous. And, you know, this was true at every crash site. There were pieces of paper, 
of a driving a license when one and then there was a letter that was discovered at another site of uh, yeah and these supposedly survived and are you know pointed the finger at al qaeda so it was just too convenient Something else is the issue of the jumpers, quite a, a controversial one, but so many people jumped from the building rather than staying. Fires or heat or whatever it might have been, but what can you tell us about what actually might have gone on with regard to the technology? What brought down the towers? Because we've already discussed that, well, it wasn't the planes or we don't think it was the planes. So what could it have been? And is there any kind of a connection then with the, the sheer numbers of people? And anecdotally, it appears that at times the sky was raining bodies from people who were preferring to leap to certain death rather than take their chances with whatever was was inside. I mean, that, that wasn't just jet fuel. Well, what I discovered was that the... Um after the 93 event, uh, you know, there was a bombing in 93, they changed the policy at the World Trade Center and the doors to the roof were locked. Okay. Those people that were trapped on the upper floors were really suffocating from smoke and heat. It must have been really terrible up there under those conditions. Mm. Um, uh, you know, it, the fires were not strong enough, were not powerful enough to bring the towers down, but they certainly caused a lot of smoke and heat that could have killed people. And those people were trapped. They couldn't get out to the roof. If they had been able to get up on the roof, they would have been, um, they could have been rescued by helicopters. But uh, you have to wonder if this was an intentional thing, uh, because it's possible that they would, if they had survived, they would have been eyewitnesses, and they might have had something to report that would have been incriminating. You know, like explosions going on. Yeah, it's, it's something that just always struck me. Uh, there were news helicopters, and I mean, there, there are videos that are freely available uh, where you can, you can see, well, it's assumed that they're news helicopters. There are one or two helicopters in the area. And the last thing they're doing is trying to help any of the people who are plainly stuck at the top of a building in extreme distress. And, I mean, that, that just doesn't, doesn't add up to me. It just flies in the face of any kind of humanity on, on, on well, a very basic Well, it would have been difficult to try to save people from the windows so you know on the, at the upper floors that would have been really tricky i don't know if they could have, maybe it could have been done uh barbara honiger uh, another researcher seems to think that it that they could have saved some people that way but mm. it it would have been risky you know and uh much safer to just you know set down on the roof and take people off that way but the doors were locked they couldn't get up to the roof okay so those people, you know, you can imagine what it must have been like, just a horrible experience, their last moments. And some people probably became so panicky and so hot and, and suffocating that they just chose to jump. To jump, you know. Brought them down. You want to talk about that? Yeah, let's talk about that. What, what did actually bring these buildings down? Well, uh, the architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth have put together a pretty good website where they, they systematically look at all the evidence <clears throat> and all the features of a demolition are present. So there's like about a dozen different uh, uh, characteristics of a demolition, all of which uh, are, were, were present at uh, 9-11 at the World Trade Center. So I would encourage people to go up to the Architects for Engineer and Engineers for 9-11 Truth website, just Google them, and go up there. They have really excellent videos and uh, where they interview their engineers and, and experts about all the evidence and just cover it. Very persuasive. Uh, it's a very persuasive uh, case that they put that they make. 
I think the numbers are now up to around uh, a couple thousand, several thousand engineers have have signed on to this uh, this site. So there's a lot of expertise up there. And these are people who are willing to stake their professional reputations. That's right. And uh, Richard Gage founded it. He's a very uh, he's a very inspiring uh, architect who goes around talking about this and trying to get on and you know trying to get on television networks and new shows and get the word out. One of the, as I mentioned before, I think um, I think I mentioned one of the failings of the official investigations, uh, for example, the NIST investigation, is they never they never uh, looked for uh, residues of explosives, and uh, if they'd looked, they would have found them undoubtedly. We had an independent team of scientists that reported finding. You probably know about this. Um, they found residues of nanothermite in the dust. Yeah, and uh, there's there's it's very likely that uh, thermite was used to take out, uh, I would guess, the upper stories. Um, there's a lot of controversy. Uh, there's, there's a pretty interesting debate going on right now uh, in the, within the 9-11 truth community about nanothermite versus the evidence for mini-nukes uh, that would have, some, some argue, and I think there's a pretty strong case, uh, that would have been needed to take out those really huge columns at the base of the buildings, because I don't know if nanothermite could have done that. Yeah, because let's face it, it's something that, again, I think is glossed over quite a lot. The pile of rubble that was left behind, it was incredibly small. It was only small. six stories. That's, that's not what you would expect. Yeah, I mean, for the amount of steel and the amount of cement <clears> that was contained, where did it go? It seemed to just vaporize almost. That's right. The uh, a lot of the concrete was simply uh, uh, atomized, you know, converted to dust, and that took an enormous amount of energy to do that. It takes a tremendous amount of energy to do to do that. Uh, usually, when if if you have an earthquake and you have a pancake, uh, you know, in a third world country, you have these these old these buildings that are not not built to stand earthquakes. They come down, they pancake, <clears throat> and you see one layer just sitting on top of another. Mm. Well, that didn't happen to World Trade Center. The, uh, there was no pancaking at all. Uh, and, you know, it's just, it defies the laws of physics, really, because you, could have, you had this plane impact up, way up high in the building where the steel columns are a lot thinner, you know. And they're trying to get us think, make us believe that the weight of the upper stories crushed the floors below that doesn't happen because the strength is down below. That's where you have the really strong columns, the mm. thick columns. And it was perfectly, perfectly intact, you know. So, you know, that, that horse, that, that dog don't hunt. You know, it just doesn't, doesn't wash. Yeah, so we've all this evidence that certainly flies in the face of the official story then. So do you think it's, it's possibly some kind of... Um I don't know, black budget energy weapon that was used? Or, I, I mean, you, you mentioned mini-nukes there. there. There are many different theories that are espoused by different people. So what's your own gut feeling or your instinct with regard to what was used and who exactly Well, you mentioned Judy Wood. I, I, you know, I read her book, parts of it. I read the whole thing. I've looked through it. And uh, she brings out a lot of interesting uh, uh, facts that there, there should be, we should look at. I don't really believe. I don't think there's any uh, that uh, some some exotic weapon was used. Mm. I believe the uh, there was a, a Russian intelligence 
dump recently, uh, just a couple months ago, and this is reported up at Veterans Today. Your listeners can go up to that website and review this evidence uh, that uh, supports the mini-nuke hypothesis. Apparently, the Russians uh, released uh, some of their own intelligence data indicating that uh, according to the Russians, the Sandia lab actually studied the World Trade Center dust, and this was a secret study, and they found the radioactive isotopes, you know, indicating that, it was, that many nukes were used and that these were fission-fusion weapons. They were probably neutron bombs. Uh, and they believe that they actually identified the specific uh, weapons that were... Uh, uh, nuclear artillery shells that the U.S. had passed to Israel back in the uh, during the H.W. Bush and Clinton years that had been reconfigured. It's pretty shocking stuff, uh, and uh, I'd like to see that Sandia study. It hasn't been released yet. I'm, I'm, so this is, it's not proven, but it's very compelling, and I believe, and uh, I've been trying to convince the uh, Gordon Duff, who runs that site, to post that Sandia study. He apparently has it. He has part of it anyway. That was part of the dump. But they haven't posted it yet, so... It also ties in with some of the anecdotal evidence <clears throat> that exists from first responders and the massive health problems that oh, they have yes. had since 9-11, a lot of which seem to be consistent with radiation poisoning. That's right. You have the leukemias, and you have the specific types of cancer that are usually associated with radiation. That's, yeah, that's pretty clear. Yeah, and I think the figures are completely off the scale, again, beyond coincidence. So, Mark, it brings me on to what I think is the elephant in the room, and that's Building 7, the Solomon Brothers building, which, of course, was the third skyscraper that fell. And again, it, um, to me, it's, it's staggering that so many people don't, haven't heard of this yet, but a lot of people haven't, and that's fine. So let's tell them about Building 7, because for me personally, it's, well, there are many smoking guns, but it's the, the main one. I mean, it was the one that certainly made me sit up and think, hang on a minute, this is just beyond ridiculous. So what was Building 7, and what's the significance of it? Well, uh, yeah, let's talk about that. Um, the first of all, I think this was a mistake. You know, this building was supposed to come down during the during the uh, collapse of the, one of the other towers, and it would have been hidden by all the dust, so mm-hmm. no one would have seen it go down. And uh, somebody screwed up. And you know, this is one of the uh, like possibly in the case of Flight 93. You know, this this plot, this plan, 9/11. Uh, they screwed up in a, in a few cases, and uh, Building 7 is the most obvious screw-up. Uh, they brought this building down at 520 later in the day on 9-11. Uh, and uh, right in broad daylight, and, you know, we've got numerous videos of this thing from different angles, and you can see the building just come down. It looks just like a controlled demolition, and undoubtedly that's what it was. And uh, they kept this thing quiet. They, the footage has never been shown on mainstream U.S. TV since it happened. Wow. So uh, for a very good reason, because if the people saw the footage, they would, they would begin to uh, suspect that, you know, this was the truth. They would begin to suspect the truth. So, yeah, this was a 47, I think, 47-story building, steel frame of... Uh, would have been the tallest building in quite a few states in this country, and, and yet uh, a lot of Americans, 40, 50 percent, don't even know that, it, that this thing came down on 
And the uh, Rudy Giuliani had his Office of Emergency Management there on the 23rd floor. It was the crisis center for New York City. And apparently they abandoned that crisis center uh, that morning and set up a different crisis center down on the pier there. Uh, uh, FEMA was there. You know, there, was a, there were all kinds of uh, uh, training exercises going on on 9-11. One of them was a chemical attack, and FEMA was already there the night before 9-11, all ready to go. Oh, there know? we go again, a classic sign of a false flag. Absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, and uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission, very curiously, had their files. They had, I think, two floors there, two or three floors. And those were the floors that burned there were only a limited number of floors in Building 7 that were that actually burned, and they, uh, it was the Securities and Exchange Commission offices that burned, and all their files were lost. Many investigations into co- corporate crime, all those records were lost. Very conveniently. Yeah, very, very convenient. Another convenience there. Yes, and uh, well, we know the Securities and Exchange Commission had been shredding files anyway. I mean, they've been doing that since the mid-'90s and, uh, you know, destroying evidence because it's such a corrupt agency. Mm. But uh, maybe that wasn't, even that wasn't enough. <laughs> they needed to, there were so many, so much evidence that needed to be made to go away, and that was uh, that was part of it. CIA had a huge office in Building 7, and the Department of Defense, and there were insurance companies there, too. And there's a lot of reasons to bring the building down. Now, we can only guess, you know, we can only guess, but... And one of the very interesting things about it, I don't know how commonly spread this information is in the US, but it's with regard to the BBC reporting of the collapse of Building 7, with it still standing in the background yes. before it actually <laughs> happened. This was reported on the BBC yeah. and, uh, that morning, and you, yeah, you, you can find this footage on the internet, um, and you can see the building in the background. It hasn't fallen yet. And I mean, if there's nothing else, if there's no other shred of information or evidence that doesn't scream conspiracy or cover up our lies, surely it's that. The Absolutely. B- the BBC, this is the, uh, the one that uh, you just can't ignore. It's so obvious. <laughs> well, yeah, it's complete proof that the BBC, at the very least, knew that that building was going to fall before it did. And, you know, and the, 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 this collapse was never mentioned in the, world, in the 9-11 Commission report, not one word about it. And NIST uh, completely ignored it, um, in uh, their, their report about the World Trade Center collapse uh, in 2000, I think it was a 2005 report, mm. they don't mention it. Then they put it off, and it took them, you know, a number of years to, to try to put together a convincing uh, explanation for it. And uh, they finally came out with their report on Building Seven in 2008, just as my first book was going to press, and we were able to to do a short write-up on it, but. The hypothesis that they advance, the explanation, is just cockamamie. You know, it's just ridiculous. And uh, they never revealed, they never made their computer model available for other scientists to to look at. So it's basically a black box, you know, their their computer model. And the thing was, clearly it was reverse, and they reverse engineered this thing. Mm. They reverse engineered their computer model to generate the desired outcome. That's what they did. When you add all of these, it's it's not even one or two pieces of isolated coincidence. I mean, it's one thing after another. We've been speaking for the last uh, last hour and a quarter, roughly, and it's been one thing after another. 
And we're just scraping the surface here, you know. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, we literally could speak for days and weeks and months about this and the evidence would continue to mount. But one thing I would like to talk about before we start to wrap things up for, uh, for, for this episode, Mark, is the consequences and what 9-11 meant, not just for the US, but for the world at large, because it has been the fulcrum around which global geopolitics and the world and our everyday living has changed, because things have changed beyond all recognition and in an unprecedented way in terms of the speed at which they have changed. So let's talk about what it actually meant, what happened in the immediate aftermath, uh, the Patriot Act obviously being being something. So how did life change in America and what were the knock-on effects then worldwide of 9-11? Well, if you just look at, I mean, you can, like you say, there's so many things we can talk about. But just for one, look at the economy. Um, you had the boom years of the Clinton uh, administration, you know, when uh, there's plenty of work in the country, and after 9-11, everything changed. Uh, now, uh, they, you know, the, the jobs have gone offshore, and uh, I mean, I remember when I was a young man, you know, I never had trouble finding work mm. in the 70s and 80s. If you didn't like one job, go out and get another one. And that's the way it was. It, it's been that way. It was that way for many decades. I've talked with guys who lived through World War II, and they told me it was the same way then. You know, there was always work. Go down to the mill, get a job. If you don't like that one, go out get another one. You know, or get an education and work your way up, you know, the American dream, you know. Yeah. But that's gone away now. And that uh, we have kids who are going through college. They come out of college. You know, they're deep in debt uh, because tuition's gone up so much. And there's no job waiting for them. And you have these engineers working as bartenders or taxi drivers, uh, or they, you know, or, and they just give up. Uh, and, and people are demoralized because of this. So these students, uh, they're not thinking about activism or politics. They're just thinking about trying to s- survive, uh, you know, their own life economically, get it finding a job, you know. Mm. We never had that when I was younger. Uh, it's changed so much, and these young—I wouldn't want to be uh, graduating from college these days. It's just not not a very bright outlook out there for most of them. Yeah. That's just one thing that's changed. And you mentioned the Patriot Act. Um, well, this was ready to go. I mean, they didn't write this in the aftermath of 9/11. They had this thing already written. In fact, I believe it was ready to go probably in '95 at the time of the uh, Oklahoma City bombing the Mira building in New York, in Oklahoma City. That was another false flag. Uh, I think the evidence is pretty clear there, too. Yeah. But um, the event wasn't dramatic enough. It wasn't big enough that they could get it, you know, that they could succeed in moving us forward into this uh, war on terrorism that they wanted uh, as a pretext for all this uh, foreign intervention, you know, and these... Uh, to make basically make the world safe for Wall Street so we can loot anywhere we want to. That's really what the goal is, I think. That's the end game. They want a, they want a, a free hand to go into any country they want, forget national sovereignty, you know, uh, just turn loose our, uh, the CIA, these covert operations, and if that's not enough, we go in with the, the military to take control of the oil resources and anything else we want. And blame it on terrorism. And that's exactly what has happened. 
if you look at any of the regimes that have been toppled in the aftermath, um, it, it's always interesting to look at the economic situation and what currencies they're using and whether they're uh, U.S. Uh, petrodollar backed or whether they're involved with Ro- right. Rothschild-based central banks or not. And you look at, for example, Iraq and Libya and it's just, That's right. it's amazing. What you have just described is exactly what is happening. It's almost like that um, th- the Wall Street puppeteers can use the military machinery of the United States now, post 9-11, to step in and totally obliterate any kind of a system that exists that's not to their liking or that they can't milk and rape. Well, we saw, the, we saw this in the case of uh, Iraq with Saddam Hussein. He sealed his own death warrant when he uh, began to accept euros for oil instead of just dollars. Mm. And uh, that was the reason we went in there, undoubtedly. And the uh, same thing happened to Muammar Gaddafi. He, he gave up his nuclear program, you know, and we thought that everything was that uh, he was now in the good graces of the, uh, the the powers that be, except that he began to take gold and other currencies for oil, not just dollars, and well, that was that was it for him. You know? yeah. And uh, Iran uh, has been trying to get started a uh, a uh, an oil bourse. They call it a bourse. I guess it's a kind of a trading. Uh, uh, exchange where people can go in and buy their oil and and use other currencies, and that is the reason that Iran has been in the crossfires, the crosshairs, but they haven't been able to 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 attack Iran yet. There's uh, undoubtedly that's in the plan, but mm-hmm. part of the plan, but they haven't been able to make it happen yet. Probably because Russia and China have, uh, you know, have been defending Iran and continue to do business with Iran and and. Uh, so it, it's you know they've they they had to put this off they delayed it and uh, in the meantime of course we're seeing the uh, attacks on Syria and the uh, this just this disastrous uh, uh, Middle East uh, nightmare it just it's just spreading now it's one big war uh, in Iraq and Syria mm. with the, the rise of this these uh, ISIS this. Uh, Funded by the Saudis, you know, undoubtedly yeah. that's where the funding came from and the support, and the U.S. also supporting it. Uh, and But I think the Saudis finally have waked up that realize that this, they have unleashed a Frankenstein monster and it's going to turn on them. And I think there may have been a change, of, uh, but it, it's probably too late, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, and all the while... Wall Street gets richer and bigger and machinery of war continues to generate massive, massive figures. And that's what it appears to be all about. It's money and power as opposed to anything else. There's no humanity in what I would perceive as a psychopathic control system. I mean, remove even the individuals or the cogs in the machine from it. And what you are left with is a system where anybody is replaceable on an individual level. And it's very interesting. I don't know how that necessarily can be stopped and certainly one way it can't be stopped is by seeking answers to the problems or solutions from those who are precipitating and exacerbating those very problems they're not going to change anything for us so well, let's let's make, let's talk about that john that's, that's that's a really important point uh it looks to me like what is taking place is the politics of relative advantage you know because the U.S., <clears throat> I believe that one of the motivations for the U.S., and, and we haven't gotten into it yet, uh, we haven't had time, but uh, I think the U.S. was was responsible for the uh, overthrow in Ukraine that happened last February. These, yeah. these neo-Nazis were involved, and we supported them. 
and I believe one of the motivating uh, factors here is simply to make things really bad over there, uh, to make to hurt the euro, to hurt hurt the European economy, to um, make the dollar look better than it really is. Just so it's kind of a relative advantage, you know. We try to stir up turmoil and, and cause mayhem somewhere else, just just to make our uh, divert people, part part of it's that, to just divert attention away from the problems here at home. But we are in a real serious bind right here uh, with our economy and with our dollar. And I think uh, one of the strategies is simply to uh, try to play this, make this uh, the house of cards stand for as long as they can. You know, and they're, they're resorting to all sorts of uh, stopgap uh, things to uh, keep it going. Yeah, and I think the sticking plaster that they're applying to the wound is working in the short term. I know certainly in terms of, for example, Ireland, where I'm based, the impression that most Irish people have of the US is still the American dream. It's Hollywood, it's Disneyland, it's Obama, it's the glitz and the glamour, and nobody thinks to scratch below the surface. I mean, even for a lot of people, 9-11 appears to have been a tragic blip as opposed to something that wakes them up to the kind of nefarious workings of what's actually going on and uh, as opposed to preempting the truth really because what we're trying to get at is the truth and I think when people are willing to open themselves up to the truth as it exists only then can things change but the sticking plaster method that you've described there certainly seems to be working in Europe and I, I do think that Ukraine and Russia is something that can wake some people up on this side of things because they just Europeans see it as being a little bit closer to home and particularly Central and Eastern Europeans, they get the politics of the region in a way that a lot of Westerners don't. And because there's such cross-pollination culturally now within Europe with the establishment of the EU, and I think that maybe it's one of the, uh, one of the side effects that wasn't necessarily planned for when the EU was brought into existence, a lot of the knowledge has kind of cross-pollinated also. And I think Europeans are far more clued in to Eastern European politics and, by extension, Russian politics than they would have been in the past. And I think, as a result, Russia, rather than being the great communist bear over there in the East, is now viewed very, very differently. It's, sir, if the Europeans would simply look after their own interests uh, and become dubious of some of the U.S. Uh, uh, foreign policies, uh, just look after your own interests, uh, yeah. then, uh, for example, Germany... Uh, Germans need all of Europe, but especially the Germans need that uh, the energy resources from Russia. Russia needs uh, German technology. So you have uh, they're really natural trading partners. Yeah. And I think that uh, I'm very suspicious. The uh, NSA. We know the NSA was uh, surveilling uh, Merkel, uh, German Chancellor Merkel's uh, phone for many years. Yeah. So you have to wonder, you know, is did the U.S. find some way to control her, and or are they simply paying her off with bags of money, like uh, Paul Craig Roberts has been saying? Because she's not acting in the interests of Germany, and I think this is. Uh, I noticed that three of the former chancellors have been sharply critical of her policies, the way she has, a, you know, just going along with Obama. Sometimes it's just so obvious that she has become a lapdog and that Europe has become, by extension, a lapdog for U.S. foreign policy that it, it, it almost beggars belief at times. It's just, again, we, we've spoken about a lot of ridiculous anomalies with regard to 9-11. The same ridiculousness exists with regard to European attitudes to the U.S., in my opinion. Would you agree? Well, I, you know, I, you have a much more... 
you're much more in, in touch with uh, the European frame of mind than me, John. <laughs> I've never been to Europe, and I'm, of course, I, I try to follow it, but I can't, I, I don't have a handle on it like you do. Yeah, you live there, so... Yeah, that would certainly be my opinion. And in Ireland, I mean, there there is nowhere except perhaps the UK that is more Americanized than Ireland. It's almost like another state, and a, that is a, a traditional cliche, but I think for so many different reasons, it's nothing to do now with cultural and, and uh, historical reasons. When you look at rendition flights that are being used by the US, the stop-off point is supposedly neutral Ireland. We have two airports existing in the west of Ireland, which is uh, very sparsely populated, that can facilitate all kinds of NATO and US fighter planes and bombers. I mean, absolutely ridiculous. They're basically US Air Force bases without the permanent stations. They're stop-off points and refueling points for the US well, mil- I would, military. I would encourage strongly encourage your listeners to become active on some of these some of these things, you know. But I couldn't agree more. And here's an interesting one for you. Only today it came to light. There are a number of uh, politicians, and I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the political system that exists here, but there are a number of politicians who would be seen as crackpot politicians in Ireland, and they, they've been quite recently elected. Two of them attempted yesterday to inspect in Shannon Airport in the west of Ireland to inspect US military planes that were being guarded by the Irish Army and were arrested per se. And I just found it very, very interesting to see the the media backlash and by extension the Irish public backlash against the two politicians who had attempted to highlight Ireland's supposed neutrality and the contradictions that exist there with regard to the relationship with the US and how they have been ridiculed ever since for doing exactly that, which is, to my mind, standing up for the interests of a sovereign nation, or what should be a sovereign nation. So I agree with you fully. People need to become aware and become informed of these issues and actually do something about it instead of pontificating from an armchair. I think people actually need to take back some of their power and take personal responsibility for what's going on around them. Only then can something change, in my opinion. Well, you you really hit the nail on the head, John. I agree totally with what you just said. People need to take back their power. Well, I must say, Mark, I would love to speak for another hour and a half. It's been absolutely fascinating, and we will speak for another hour and a half in the future. There's so much we can speak about. But before we go, can you give us a little bit of a reminder of where people can find you online and tell us about the books as well and how people can get their hands on your work? Yes. Um, all they have to do is Google my name and Mark, Mark H. Gaffney, and the name of my recent book, Black 9-11, and that should put them in, you know, put them uh, in touch with a lot of material on the Internet. And they can go to my website, which, is, uh, which features my uh, Gnostic book. Uh, it's GnosticSecrets.com. And that's something I'd very much like to speak with you about in the future as well. Mark, we'll get those links up on the website for you as well so people can just click on alchemyradio.net. But in the meantime, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Mark Gaffney, it's been fantastic speaking to you today and enlightening on Alchemy Radio. Thank you for joining me. Been a lot of fun, John. Thank you. Keep doing what you're doing. Alchemy Radio. I'm sick and tired of hearing things from uptight, short-sighted, narrow-minded hypocritics. All I want is the truth. Just give me some truth I've had enough of reading things By neurotic, psychotic, big-headed politicians All I want is the truth Just give me some truth No short-haired, yellow-bellied son of tricky dick He's gonna mother her, but top so me But just a pocket full 
I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Alchemy Radio. Remember, we rely on donations to keep the show in its current free and advertising-free format and are extremely grateful for any little bit of help you can offer, whether it's the price of a cup of coffee or indeed the price of a private jet. We'll gratefully accept it all and we will plow it straight back into the show. The donate button is on the website and thank you indeed to everybody who has donated and helped out over the last number of weeks. It's really hugely appreciated. We'll be back very, very soon with another episode of Alchemy. Until then, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio. Analyze. Alchemy Radio. Conceive. Alchemy Radio. Believe. Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in?